This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, the fourth annual She Festival of Women in Music is underway at the University of Arkansas. More about that in our second half hour. We start with a series of events at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith dedicated to going deeper into the Civil War and as an adjacency, exploring why a more nuanced understanding of history is important. Think of the biggest stories of the past few years, the pandemic, invasion of Ukraine, election controversy. Each has connections to the past. Evan Rothera, assistant professor of history at UAFS, says the Civil War lecture series should help expand knowledge of the deep history connected to contemporary issues. We talked with Evan. And with one of the speakers in the series, Matthew D. Norman, an assistant professor of history at the University of Cincinnati Blue Ash College, last week. Norman discussed the lecture he delivered, inspired by his upcoming book, Knowing Him by Heart, an anthology of African-American writings on Abraham Lincoln. We'll hear much of that conversation in a moment. But first, Evan explains how having a speaker like Matthew Norman on campus can broaden understanding of history. Students often fall into these traps of thinking, oh, well... You know, well, Lincoln must have been the great emancipator and, you know, there must have been this set of perceptions about him. But, you know, as as Matt's talk showed us, as his work um, in other forums has and as his book does, too, I mean, there's an incredible kind of there's just a lot of complexity surrounding Lincoln and a lot of nuance that we really have to be very attentive to. Um, and, you know, the invocations of Lincoln are fascinating. I mean, who is and who isn't invoking Lincoln, especially as you get deeper and deeper into the 20th century. And what do we choose to, what do people choose to invoke about Lincoln? And I mean, you know, James Vardaman, for instance, who was one of the more racist uh, Southern senators during the early 19 teens, he would carry around just a fragment of Lincoln's um, speech at Charleston as part of the Lincoln Douglas debates where Lincoln says, among other things, just because I don't want a black woman for a slave doesn't mean I would want her for a wife, you know, and I'd love to pull this out and kind of try and shatter people's perceptions about Lincoln. And so there's a debate too. I mean, you know, did, was he forced into glory as Bennett suggested? Did Lincoln grow or evolve at all? Was he, as some historians have suggested, kind of a closet egalitarian who was trying to push the country to this perspective? Um, and so just thinking about those things and trying to get students to, you know, deal with the nuances and the complexities. And then um, Matt came and talked to my Civil War and Reconstruction class. And one of the things he did is he provided two documents from his book, Frederick Douglass's famous speech at the uh, dedication of the Ball Monument. And then Robert Moton, who replaced Booker T. Washington, his speech at the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. And if you look at that Douglas speech, and, and Matt can say more about this, um, even there you see Douglas kind of going back and forth on Lincoln. So we quote, right, from that speech, Douglas saying Black people were only his stepchildren. But, you know, there's also some other stuff Douglas has said that shows he, you know, had some other ideas about Lincoln, too. And he's revising his own ideas. And um, again, Matt could talk about this, but one of the great points of the Moton speech is not just seeing the final product that was delivered, but, you know, what were the revisions that were made before the delivery? Uh, and they they do change the nature and tenor of the speech. So, yes, I mean, I think this lecture was great in terms of kind of showing people that, you know, well, yes, a lot of African-Americans said Lincoln is the great emancipator. But what about other voices, too, and other perspectives and showing how there's always this tension 
you know, in, in my African-American memory of Lincoln, to say nothing of white memory or, you know, other memories as well. Evan Rothera, Assistant Professor of History at UAFS, speaking during a conversation we recorded via Zoom last week. Also part of the discussion, Matthew Norman, talking about the lecture he delivered as part of the UAFS series based on his upcoming book, Knowing Him by Heart, an anthology of African-American writings on Abraham Lincoln. If you look at what African-Americans have written and said about Abraham Lincoln, it is very nuanced and complex, even from uh, single individuals themselves, like Frederick Douglass, for example, who liked Lincoln in 1858 when he first took notice of him and then was very critical of Lincoln, uh, beginning with Lincoln's inaugural address, first inaugural address in March 1861, and was critical of Lincoln really until after Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. What kind of shifted for, for Frederick Douglass? Well, I think what, what really changed for Douglass was Lincoln's decision to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. And prior to that, Douglass was very frustrated with what he perceived as Lincoln's reluctance to take direct action against slavery. And Lincoln was not only a proponent initially of gradual compensated emancipation, but he also was urging free black people to leave the United States. And he was working on a plan for colonization. And Lincoln had a meeting at the White House in the summer of 1862, where he met with a delegation of free black men and urged them to leave the United States. And at this time, Douglas was editing a monthly newspaper and he really erupted after he read the account of this meeting and was very critical of Lincoln for being a proponent of colonization and for seemingly dragging his feet on the issue of emancipation. And once Lincoln issued the proclamation, the preliminary proclamation in September 1862, and then the final proclamation in January 63, Douglas's views began to shift. And then he finally met Lincoln in person for the first time in the summer of 1863. And Lincoln and Douglas would meet on a few occasions and I think that um, that really not only changed Douglas's views, but I think Douglas helped change Lincoln's views as well. I think some of us will be surprised. I mean, it makes sense that they did not meet until 1863. I mean, we, we tend to think of in this day of being able to fly across an ocean, you know, mm -hmm. in a relative heartbeat, that famous states people would have met more often, but it was more mm -hmm. difficult, especially when you're talking about a white man of power and a black man. Yes, Lincoln did meet uh, quite a few African-Americans in the White House during his presidency. And it was during Lincoln's presidency that African-Americans were first allowed in with the general public during uh, open receptions. It was uh, kind of a tradition to have an open house, so to speak, on New Year's Day. And for the first time, uh, during Lincoln's presidency, African-Americans were allowed in with, with white Americans for that. And, and even after that, when Lincoln would have receptions, smaller receptions, there are accounts of Black people being able to, to come in and meet President Lincoln. So one of the, one of the letters that we have in our collection, and I, I don't think I talked about this in my talk, is from Alexander Augusta. And he was a medical doctor and he had to go to Canada in order to receive a medical education because no medical school in the United States at that time would allow an African-American to attend. 
Augusta went to Toronto and studied medicine. And just after Lincoln issued the final Emancipation Proclamation in January 1863, Augusta writes to Lincoln and says, well, I've, re I've read where you're now welcoming black men into the military and I'd like to, I'd like to do something. I'd like to be a surgeon. And Augusta was invited then to come to Washington and be examined by the medical board that was certifying surgeons. And when he initially showed up, he was refused uh, an examination because of his skin color. But uh, he appealed this decision and was eventually able to pass the exam and he was commissioned as a major in the United States Army. And he was able to attend uh, the reception that Lincoln held at the White House in early 1864, where Lincoln met him and shook his hand. And I think those kinds of things uh, really symbolize the big changes that were happening in the United States during our Civil War. You mentioned that letter. Was do, Can we get any kind of idea what perhaps, um, I mean, Frederick Douglass was arguably one of the most famous men of his time. Is is there any kind of snapshot or poll we can get from what other African-Americans who might not have been famous thought of President Lincoln? Yes, we've we've tried to register that in our in our book. I mean, our book covers uh, over 150 years, but we do have a lot of items from from the Civil War period. And Lincoln received letters from regular African-Americans. And we have some of those in our collection. Um, there are items from the Lincoln Papers at the Library of Congress. We also have some items from the National Archives. Augusta's letters from his file, his uh, military service record at the National Archives. And so as a consequence, you have, you have some sense of what, what regular people were thinking about Lincoln. I also spent a lot of time going through African-American newspapers and you'll find some, some evidence there as well. And it's a uh, it's a very um, it, I think it's much more complex than one might think. You mentioned that the book covers 150 years, so mm -hmm. there's the 1860s, but mm -hmm. then there's the 150 years after that. Can mm -hmm. opinions uh, modify, change, complicate over a century and a half? Yes, <laughs> yes, they really they really do. Uh, and it and it it varies. You can find, for example, um, Emancipation Day was a widely celebrated occasion in the United States for many years following the Civil War, and that's a great source of material on Lincoln is to look at accounts of Emancipation Day celebrations. Also, uh, Lincoln's birthday was a big deal for African Americans, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Lincoln's birthday was initially primarily celebrated by Black people. And then by the late 19th and early 20th centuries, uh, more and more white people begin celebrating Lincoln's birthday. And when they do, they often exclude African-Americans from those celebrations. But when you look at the, that span of years, you see a great variety of opinions. And you can see how opinions shift over time. Uh, a big period for that is the 1930s. Because of the New Deal, during the Great Depression, uh, many African-Americans went from being very loyal Republicans, the Republican Party was the party of Lincoln, but many African-Americans shifted their allegiance to the Democratic Party. And 
Those who did were accused by Republicans, both black and white, of being disloyal to Lincoln's legacy. So there's a lot of interesting things happening in the 1930s. There's a lot of interesting things happening in the 1960s that coincide with the centennial of the Civil War and the modern civil rights movement. And I think that uh, one of the key figures, at least in the late 1960s, is a historian and journalist named Lerone Bennett. And he wrote a long essay that was published in February 1968 in Ebony Magazine, where he argues that Abraham Lincoln was a white supremacist. And the, the Bennett piece, I think, was, was very well known at the time, and it still gets cited by scholars today. But if you look at what other African-Americans are saying in the 1960s, like Martin Luther King Jr., we have a speech from him that he gave at an Emancipation Proclamation celebration in September 1962. And he's much more favorable towards Abraham Lincoln. So you have to be very careful about making any kind of generalizations about what, what Black people thought of Lincoln at any given time, because what we found is it, it really does vary quite a bit. I've seen the spread for that Bennett 1968 uh -huh. uh, magazine uh, piece. Uh -huh. And if I recall, it's like a profile of Lincoln and the words white supremacist at the mm -hmm. top. It's, it's quite arresting. Your eyes are yeah. quickly drawn to that. Yes. And of course, Ebony was a very popular magazine yeah. read by uh, people from all walks of life. It received a lot of attention. There was a lot of uh, responses to it, some of which we have in our book. And it kind of dictates the debate about Lincoln in the subsequent years and even decades. And Bennett would further write. I mean, he was writing, I think, for 30 more years uh, kind of on this subject and this topic. He did. He expanded that essay into a big book that came out in 2000 called Forced Into Glory. All right. Evan and, and Matthew Norman, I want to ask you both this final question, and it's about the students that you educate because most of them will not be historians. Most of them will not write books or papers about history. But I think we all agree here in this discussion that it's important they learn. What do you hope that non-historians who may never take another history class, who maybe even never pick up another book of history, what do you want them to take away from a semester or two of conversation, whether it be the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, World War II, and take with them? Well, maybe a just a foundation of knowledge about our past and an ability to think about not only our past, but our present critically, to understand how to weigh evidence and to make an informed decision about things. Precisely that. And I, well, I use this quote for students. And I mean, I, I studied Domingo Sarmiento, among other people. And, and in fact, I wrote some of the first things I ever wrote about Sarmiento when I was an undergrad at Gettysburg in math classes. Um, and, and he once said, right, an ignorant people will always select a tyrant. So Sarmiento was building on a larger idea at the time that educated citizens are the only sure foundation of a republic or a democracy, as the case may be. But I think one of the things we all try and do in our classrooms, like Matt said, is, yeah, you know, give people that foundation and knowledge, but also sort of give them tools for their intellectual toolkit that they can take out with them into the world, you know. And then when they hear people peddling these false narratives or saying ridiculously insane things in service of some political goal, you know, they have the 
abilities and um, to, an, uh, to analyze that and dissect it. And, you know, things like critical thinking and being able to, to read something and grasp the main point or, or distill something down to its argument. These aren't just things historians do. These are widely applicable skills that you can use in a lot of different professions. Um, so as we prepare the next generation, you know, want to teach them something about the country, sort of, you know, help them on the path to good citizenship, but also give them the tools that they need to succeed in what is a very complex and, and difficult and often dangerous world. Matthew Norman is an assistant professor of history at the University of Cincinnati Blue Ash College and author of the upcoming book, Knowing Him by Heart, an anthology of African-American writings on Abraham Lincoln. His lecture at UAFS was recorded, and we have a link to that presentation at OzarksAtLarge.com. Still two more lectures in the series, one titled A Different Manifest Destiny on Thursday, March 31st in Wingate Theater, and Clothed in Service, Indigenous Civil War Service, Sacrifice, and Commemoration. That will be delivered on April 20th. The last lecture will be given by Shay Smith-Cox of Nichols State University. We'll hear from her on an upcoming edition of Ozarks at Large. News about the war in Ukraine is Russia's everywhere. Invasion of Ukraine. The Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russia and Ukraine and held their in Ukraine, there are some big questions. But understanding those headlines can be difficult. State of Ukraine, a new podcast from NPR, tackles those stories with expert interviews and takes you to the front lines from reporters on the ground. And in this line, there are many others who plan to take up weapons for the first time as well. State of Ukraine from NPR. New episodes daily at npr.org slash podcast. This is Ozarks at Large. Arkansas's unemployment rate fell slightly at the beginning of the year. Daniel Green with our partner station KUAR in Little Rock explains. The latest report from the Arkansas Division of Workforce Services shows the state's seasonally adjusted unemployment rate fell by one-tenth of a percentage point in January to 3.2 percent. That follows a similar drop seen in December of last year and contrasts with the national jobless rate, which rose to 4 percent in January. Despite the unemployment rate falling slightly, a number of major industry sectors posted job losses, mostly due to seasonal factors. Trade, transportation, and utilities saw the largest drop of 4,600 fewer jobs in the state, mainly due to the end of temporary retail hiring for the holiday shopping season. Leisure and hospitality lost 3,900 jobs, with most of that decrease coming from food service contractors in schools and universities closed for the winter break. Government, professional and business services, and construction also posted losses. Manufacturing was the only major industry sector to post gains, adding 2,000 jobs in January. Overall, non-farm payroll jobs in Arkansas are up by around 37,700 compared to this time last year. In Little Rock, I'm Daniel Brain. The Arkansas Department of Health reported 28 deaths yesterday from COVID-19. The number of hospitalizations remained the same, with 243 people being treated statewide. There were nearly 350 new known cases of people testing positive for the virus. With recoveries and deaths outpacing new infections, the number of active cases dropped by 221, falling below 2,000 people for the first time since last June. Support for KUAF comes from the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, now featuring residential real estate, top producing agents, residential firms and teams, plus local business news from Northwest Arkansas. Subscriptions and more information available at 725-0394 or nwabusinessjournal.com. The Momentary presents Fresh Grass Bentonville on Friday and Saturday, May 20th and 21st. 
This bluegrass and progressive roots music festival welcomes Emmylou Harris and the Red Dirt Boys, Margot Price, Sam Bush, and more. TheMomentary.org for tickets and more information. It's hard to overshadow an election in an election year, but the continuing news from Ukraine is attracting much of our attention. This week, John Brummett, political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and Roby Brock with our partner Talk Business and Politics discuss both the 2022 election and the invasion of Ukraine. Roby began with Ukraine. There was a death of an American journalist who has Arkansas connections, Brent Renault. Uh, was apparently executed uh, by the Russians in Ukraine. He was there filming a documentary on refugees who were fleeing. Uh, This is pretty serious stuff. Does it change the dynamic for Americans or for um, the Biden administration in this approach now that a U.S. journalist has been killed? I think it has to, and it was already happening uh, before this uh, horrible news broke. You were beginning to uh, see... Uh, hence that uh, that uh, more direct action in arming Ukraine, giving more direct help to Ukraine, the great risks of that in the nuclear uh, w- with the nuclear complication, even that aside, you were hearing more about that. And I think this is a week when something is going to be stepped up. I don't know exactly what or how and this this most perilous uh, most perilous circumstance. but this is a uh, this literally brings it home to Little Rock. Uh, you know this, uh, I was at some function and a, and a friend of mine brought me over and said, I want you to meet a real journalist and introduced me once the one time I met uh, Brent Renault uh, and told me some of his, uh, uh, his international reporting. Uh, you know, we all have our role in journalism and some of us are here in sleepy backwoods provinces uh, commenting and uh, covering business and we serve our function. But these folks who, uh, who travel the globe to tell the stories, uh, the dangerous Dangerously told stories of uh, war and uh, and pestilence and refugees. Uh, those are the celebrated real uh, heroes. This is a this is a tragedy that brings it home to the country politically, and definitely brings it home to Little Rock, where this family and this uh, this man were well known. So I th- yes yes I think it affects some sort of unspecified change. Uh, it almost has to. Uh, and, and certainly our thoughts and condolences are with the Renault sure. family uh, on that sure. serious matter there. Um, all right, let's talk uh, some Arkansas politics. And I guess it's got a little federal dimension to it here. We're seeing some new TV ads out. Senator John Bozeman with ads dealing with uh, anti-illegal uh, immigration. We've got some Second Amendment stuff that he's rolled out now. Sarah Huckabee Sanders within ad where she's uh, telling her kids she can't watch CNN, uh, which is one of the news organizations reporting on what's happening on the front line at Ukraine. Uh, really better than anyone else, by the way. Go ahead. Go ahead. What, um, what what do you make of these TV ads? They're red meat for the right-wing base is my bottom line assessment. Yes. Here is Arkansas politics right now on a statewide basis. The game is in the Republican primary. Uh, the Democrats are simply too weak, too laden with national uh, uh, liberalism to seriously compete. So the game is in the Republican primary. And the Republican primary is skewed to the right wing. So the dialogue we get is is people shoring themselves up in the Republican primary or seeking to, to appeal to that uh, uh, decisive element. 
the, the state in the main is not actually as extreme right as this dialogue uh, and, and these messages would indicate, but the, but, but the dynamic is such that it has that kind of influence. Bozeman, obviously, is worried about Jake Beckett, and he probably ought to be. Nice-looking fellow, Razorback star with a super PAC that's spending money touting him uh, uh, in, in advertising, uh, running a, uh, against him from the right, and he's decided to spend heavily with an early message reminding people uh, who he is and, uh, and that he is fully conservative, and uh, that's going to be his message. The, he's going to... I hadn't heard previously that he was all that committed to the wall. I'm sure he was. I don't mean to suggest he's not. But he chose to make that his first message. going to help Donald Trump or finish Donald Trump's wall. Now the Second Amendment, uh, covering his bases, making his, he is fully conservative, and he is reminding people of that. Sarah Sanders really doesn't need to spend any money. She's got this thing locked up, but she's got all this money, and she seems to be proceeding with a, with a, previous game plan, which is to open with this kind of biographical message that it seeks to establish her as a regular mom of fine young children, who, oh, by the way, happens to be a close ally of, uh, of Trump. Uh, it's not a, it's a cute ad. It's a little narrative ad, and she performs all right, and her children are cute, and the dog is cute, and the house is lovely. Uh, but she she said uh, the things she had to say were radical left Biden uh, and uh, turn off CNN. Uh, and she, one word she didn't mention was Arkansas. And I continue to, to develop this theme, which I think is absolutely uh, telling, uh, that, that this is a new era in Arkansas politics. Our governors used to be people who insisted on knowing personally, come to our rallies, come to our fish fries, uh, come to our coffee shops. Uh, this is retail campaigning. We had uh, active competitive uh, primaries, and Bill Clinton always got in trouble if he flirted with national politics. This is a generational, I wouldn't say advancement, I'd more likely say a descent into fully nationalized, fully media-based uh, 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 politics. And that's, it wins. It scared out everybody in the Republican primary, and she's polling very well, and, you know, she seems uh, uh, presumptive. But I call it almost a coronation that we're watching. And having an ad that doesn't even mention the state, but an ad for governor of Arkansas that attacks CNN because it hurt the feelings of Donald Trump, that's a new, uh, that's a new uh, twist in uh, Arkansas politics. John Brummett is a political columnist with the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. His columns, including today's, can be found at ArkansasOnline.com. Roby Brock is with our partner, Talk Business and Politics. More from this week's conversation at TalkBusiness.net. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for information. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, bringing live music to the auditorium in Eureka Springs. Appearing Wednesday, March 23rd is American singer-songwriter Lyle Lovett and his acoustic band. And performing Friday, March 25th is the Marshall Tucker Band 50th Anniversary Tour with the Outlaws. Tickets at 
thundertix.com for more. The fourth annual She Festival of Women in Music, presented by the University of Arkansas Department of Music, is underway. One of the performances, a concert featuring UA Music faculty, can be seen on the UARC Music YouTube channel. That concert includes Teresa Delaplane Oboe and Leo Ribe Bassoon performing a work by Johanna Navarro. Teresa Delaplane, Leah Uribe, and Johanny Navarro gathered on Zoom recently. Leah and Teresa from Fayetteville, Johanny from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Johanny will be meeting with students virtually this week and giving feedback. She's going to celebrate her 30th birthday later this year and already has an amazing resume. Her compositions have been performed by the Arts Club of Washington, D.C., the Puerto Rico Symphony Orchestra, and her operas performed at the Puccini Chamber Opera Festival and in Washington, D.C. Our meeting last week on Zoom was a chance for the musicians to meet the composer. It's very exciting. I first heard this work last fall, last October, and uh, but I didn't start learning it until this spring, and then I learned it and recorded it with my friend Leah here. Uh, so, But this is actually the first time that I've met this wonderful composer. Likewise, uh, I came across this piece uh, thanks to Tess, and um, of course, I was uh, before we started the interview. I was talking to Johanny about how this is based on a theme that is very popular in our Latin American countries. So uh, it was such a pleasure to recognize in the music something that I knew already, and of course, to be working with Johanny, uh, which is a fellow Latin American composer, which is based in Puerto Rico. And let me ask the composer then what it's like to be talking with musicians who are working on your composition. I think it's um, it's a pleasure because usually the composition process can be like lonely in some way. You know, I'm just thinking about music and trying to write everything that I'm thinking in the page so it can be as quiet as I'm thinking of music. And usually it's just me and my thoughts and my piano right here. And then finally have the, that introduction with the, with the performance and, and having, you know, this feedback that it usually is not it, you know, I usually get the composition and send that. And then I can hear rehearsals and I can hear the piece, but I usually enjoy talking to performance and having the feedback, you know, as I, you know, Dia was mentioning that the melody brought some memories. It's like, yeah, for me too, because that's some of the, like, um, lullaby that my mom and my grandmother used to sing to me and, and having that feedback and, and bring up the same memories of childhood. It's amazing. Johanny, we are super excited to have you visiting us uh, virtually uh, for our She Music Festival. And Tess will be talking about that a little bit later. But um, I'm just curious. I mean, you have entered this world of composition. You're very young. Um, your music is already very sophisticated and beautiful. Uh, but you and I and everybody in this room know that being a composer is not easy and being a female or uh, identified as female composer is not easy. Uh, can you share with us some of these experiences and how you see your future and how you perceive your career as a woman? And um, how do you perceive all of this world of composition from your unique perspective? Um, yeah, it's a, an interesting question. And it's, I mean, 
I can talk a lot about that, but definitely I started composition at a very early age. Uh, my father is a composer also. Um, actually, we had three siblings. I'm the oldest one, and the three of us are composer in, in some way, you know, even though it's pop music or I have my younger brother, he's like a more like Afro-Caribbean pop salsa genre. And then the middle one, he's like a lot of reggaeton and urban style. And then I'm in the classical music scenery, I guess. And so, you know, composition and music was like a, a normal stuff in my home as I grew up. And at some point I decided to, to be a composer, even though I didn't know exactly what I'm supposed to do as a composer. And then I decided to enter to the music, um, music conservatory here in Puerto Rico um, and then my bachelor in music composition. So that's like when I started getting deep in what is composition and how you compose music and learning about, you know, other music and learning about the composer. Then I just figured out how we wouldn't talk about Latin composer, Latin music and female composer also. So that was a problem. Then I realized just there learning about this amazing music and I was like, okay, so that's the only great music that we're supposed to learn and imitate. And then it resonated, you know, in me, the, the, the necessity of, of exposing, you know, the work of female composer, Latin American composer, uh, in my case, Afro-Caribbean composers. So I'm just trying to get that and, and, and try to, to expose, you know, not only my work, but also works of my colleagues that are in the same, um, we say business like yeah in the same um business of music and and that's like my experience and i try to to bring some of my culture through my music and sometimes i get these spaces where i can talk and 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 exp, you know explain every detail in this case as a puerto rican and as a afro caribbean composer all the things that you know we we have to achieve, we have to overcome eventually to get our spaces in this case, you know, having the, the experience and having the opportunity to talk about myself as a composer in this festival. So this usually doesn't happen. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity. I'm excited to meet, you know, everyone and share a little bit of, of you know, what I do as a composer and how I think about music and how actually, you know, be a composer, an everyday composer, everything that, that has to be, you know, with relationship and commissions and grants and everything of that. Johanny, uh, earlier you were talking about your influences and your family and the composers in your life and how your music, and I believe you have been, you know, around all of these traditions of reggaeton and uh, Afro-Caribbean rhythms and all of these things that, by the way, you speak directly to my heart. I grew up in a city also where salsa was my first language and dancing. <laughs> so I love that about your music. Um, how much uh, have you had to convince, for example, your composition professor about using those in your music? How much of a, you have to, you know, opening uh, a space in this world of classical music with those languages included. Uh, how do you advocate yeah. for that? Well, I think that um, when I started in my bachelor, it was kind of difficult in terms of, of the style because none of my colleagues were doing that. I was like, why did you do that? Especially when you when you talk about the complexity of this, um, the Afro-Caribbean aesthetic and how all other music has this 
or try to imitate this Af this African um, layout and aesthetic and, and put it, you know, in, in their genre, salsa, for example. And then as I bring that um, aesthetic to the classical music, um, and I started to, you know, um, explore the rhythms and the sounds and the chants and everything. Um, so I, at some point I felt like a little bit left out because everyone was like, why did you do that? You know, that's, no one is going to play your music. No one's going to be interested in, in playing that or hearing you talk about, you know, that kind of tradition or music tradition that we have. So at the beginning it was very hard. Um, but actually my first professor, he was like, you are doing this very naturally. You're putting and you're adding all of these elements, these Afro-Caribbean elements very naturally to your music. So you should keep that. Keep it because it's, it's in you. And, and when it, when you know I grew older and did my master, it was like um, I felt like there was an opening for this. Um, that's when I like, exper experimentation with the music. So I feel like okay, we are gonna you know bring all of these elements to the table, these new sounds, a new aesthetic. And and I feel like I mean until today, I I feel like there's some space and people get very interested in these sounds and the combination of those sounds and and how can we exploit that and put that in what we call the classical music uh, world. Being a composer, and it's called uh, Chronicles of a Composer, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So, and so what will you be doing at that talk? Um, so it's kind of fun because the name, you know, Cronica de una Compositriz, actually Compositriz, that's like a made up word. In Spanish, we, we would say Compositora. But it's, you know, um, a professor once told me that, like, compositrice. It's like saying compostress in, like, in English. Right. So it's like a mess. Right. Yeah, I made a world. And, and it was funny at that time. But then I realized that, well, I do a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with composing. And so that's like, well, going to make that word and, and keep saying that because um, I'm a, like a freelance composer and I compose, but then I have to do a lot of stuff, especially, you know, with the production of, you know, getting your music play, being your own uh, producer, publisher, uh, your own manager, and how to combine all of those um, worlds and learn how to do that yourself. So I can, you know, have a career and, and, and try to push my music over and make that happen to myself. So I, I will be talking about that, you know, all of my influence and how I, I got to, to the composer, uh, to the composition world. And after my career as a, in, my, in my school, you know, after I did my master, what come next, you know, and that experience of what I'm going to do, because, you know, I learned a lot of stuff, but then I have to do a career. If I'm going to do that, how am I going to do and achieve that, the communication, the relationships, um, the bunch of emails that you have to send all the time about people, you know, yes. I'm here, I'm going to work, I I'm willing to work. And we're going to talk about uh, that and, and a little bit of, you know, like motiv like motivation also, you know, because it's, it's, we can do it and it's not nothing that it's, it's not impossible. And, and, you know, the, the, because I remember being, you know, in my last days of the masters, it's like what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do with my career, with my life, and then I, I, I that. yeah, right. So <laughs> it was crazy because when I returned to Puerto Rico, that was I, I did my master in DC, and then I returned to Puerto Rico, 
And that was on the 2017. And that's what we were hit by the Hurricane Maria. That it was like awful and was an awful experience. And I was like very lost because there was nothing. I, w- I spent like three months uh, with without power in my home and just okay. trying to, you know, like, yeah, you know, thinking about music, thinking about how I'm going to do, you know, if I want to compose, how I'm going to do that and how I'm going to do that work. So I want to talk about all of that experience um, in terms of how to, you know, how I organize in that time in my life. And then just like, I feel like that was the push to do what I what I want to do is compose. And I'm still doing it from my home, you know, Puerto Rico, which I, I'm very blessed to, you know, be here with my family, my friends and, you know, in, in, my, in my home and being uh-huh. able to share my music through the world and, and just be part of something bigger. Johanny Navarro is one of the featured composers who will be participating virtually in this week's She Festival of Women in Music at the University of Arkansas. She was in her recording studio in Puerto Rico for our Zoom conversation last week with Teresa Delaplane and Leah Uribe from the University of Arkansas Department of Music faculty recording their part in Fayetteville. Pre-registration is required for the live Zoom Festival events connected with the She Festival. We have a link at ozarksatlarge.com. And you can see and hear the entire faculty concert from this year's festival, including the music written by Johanna Navarro from Leah Uribe and Teresa Delaplane at the UARC Music YouTube channel. This is Ozarks at Large with me, Catherine Charles, our Milton Grammarian. Welcome. Thank you. Kyle, I bet you were a WKRP in Cincinnati fan. Huge. Loved that <laughs> show. And I'm sure you remember Les Nessman's Thanksgiving turkey fiasco. As God is my witness, I and, thought turkeys could fly. Especially since it happened right here in northwest Arkansas. Do you remember that story? Well, Yellville would have the... I mean, they did it every year. That's yeah. why where I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. And they what did they do? They throw turkeys out <laughs> of these low-flying planes. It was horrible. But you know what was worse? They had a pageant, right? Because it was turkey trot days. And they had Miss Drumsticks competition. <laughs> and so you would just have women. Oh, my God. Just their legs? Yes. So there would be placards. So uh-huh. all you saw were, I guess, their calves or their th- uh-huh. I never... But the Miss... <laughs> You would vie to be Miss Drumsticks. Not that we were objectifying or anything. No, no, no. Anyway, yes, WKRP. WKRP. Well, this is not about the turkey fiasco. It's uh, a quick dialogue exchange from the show that sticks in my mind is when Herb Tarlick. Arkansas native. Yes, when always carried a Razorback cup. Yep. Is once again trying to impress Jennifer Marlowe. Lonnie Anderson. Yes, the sexy assistant and much superior intellect in the office. Herb says he says a campaign needs De Niro, muy De Niro, <laughs> to which Jennifer calmly retorts, Herb, in Spanish, that means very money. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so what happened there is that Herb got the quantifier wrong. We're going to talk about quantifiers. Okay. A quantifier is a word or phrase that is used before a noun to indicate an amount or number. Give me an example. An amount or number before a noun. Much money. Yeah. A lot of money. Yeah. Um, Or even $3. Oh, $3. Mm -hmm. Sure. Of course. Yes. Mm -hmm. Specific. Right. Okay. Um, T 
typically, quantifiers come before a noun to indicate a quantity, uh, like a few apples, some milk, a pinch of salt. Quantifiers are usually adjectives. Some describe specific amounts, but others are uncountable, mm -hmm. a pinch of. Right? Mm -hmm. As much as I would like to launch into my rant on the decaying use of, you, of less to right. the exclusion of fewer and amount to the exclusion of number— I'll hold off, Okay. <laughs> although I do kind of refer to it. Yes. <laughs> Instead, WordGenius.com has identified some other quantifiers that are often used and misused. Okay. Okay. What's the difference, Kyle, between a couple and a few? Well, a couple is two mm -hmm. and only two. Mm -hmm. Never anything but two. I know. Few is three or four, maybe? Yeah. I always think of few as three, uh -huh. but I, I, I imagine it's mm -hmm. a wider... Right. Though sometimes used interchangeably, they are not exact synonyms. By literal definition, a couple means two. However, it is acceptable to use a couple as an indefinite number in informal situations. I need a couple more minutes. Sure, that's yeah. right. Not meaning exactly two more minutes, just a small number of minutes. So when does a few become many? Like a, uh, there's a, there's a, is there an official line? Because for me, well, it also depends what you're talking about. Yeah, it could be. I mean, yeah. um, I have a few dollars. Yeah, that could be five, six, seven. Uh -huh. I have many dollars. That's that could far, be ten. Yeah, <laughs> yeah depending on, on the most time days, of month. that right. could be ten. <laughs> um, I'm going to say, as a general rule, in my mind, mm -hmm. few goes up to four or f five would be the top mm -hmm. for few. Yeah, uh, the phrase "a few" is used to describe a small number of something, but usually three or more. It's generally accepted that the quantifiers have an imaginary boundary mm -hmm. when the amount no longer qualifies as small, but there's no official limit. Right. So it really, you know, I, I was encouraging you to say to me, to me, because that's really okay. how it is. Similarly, Kyle, when do you use several and when do you use some? Oh, it's... Now, some is more than... can be more than few. Mm -hmm. I have... I have some reservations mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. um, taking that approach. Now, what you... You say some reservations. What is the characterization of reservations well, that makes some rather than several? Well, I mean, you can have different reservations. Like, I don't think we can afford that. I don't really have time to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, so in my mind, I'm thinking there is numbers of reservations right. that you have. So I might have some, but if I have several, oh, my gosh, I don't want to go to her house. Oh, it's more than some They have a dog that bites. Yeah. That's funny because I think of several as counted and some as uncounted. Oh, no, I just think of a different amounts. Like some, mm -hmm. I've got it. Some to me is a few, several is many. Uh -huh. Well, this is inching closer to my rant, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> and as I think about it, I don't hear several very often anymore. Hmm. I hear some. Like amount, some seems to be the default for the lazy or misinformed reader. Hmm. Rather than saying, I have several reservations about that. They'll say I'll, they'll say some, huh. or I have. Uh, they'll even say I have some pencils here, rather than I have several pencils here. Hmm. Interesting. Um, several and some mean the same thing, but they modify different types of nouns. Like the quantifier number, several is a countable quantity. And I think you, although you didn't address it, yeah. you know that. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be yeah. something that's counted. Several right. does, where right. some could could apply to. Exactly. Seems to apply to either. Um, 
like the word amount, sum is used for uncountable, intangible, or bulk quantities. There okay. was there was some paper that students could use. Okay. You, know, you okay. could count yeah. it, but yeah. you don't right. look at it that right. way. As for the line between several and many, well, it's not a line. It's quite amorphous. <laughs> yeah, I, was good. I would not expect there to be a line. Several is more likely to mean three, four, or five than it is 20. Sure. I, I would agree with that. Some is often called a determiner rather than a quantifier because it refers to an unspecified amount or number. I would like some cake. Well, yeah. how much cake do you want? You know. Right, right. Um, or it can describe an unknown entity. There is some mistake. <laughs> Good point, yeah. yeah. Some also can be a pronoun for, for more than a few, but still an unknown amount of people or an unknown number of people. Excuse me. Some also can be a pronoun for more than a few, but still an unknown number of people or things like some are saying. We know we've heard a lot of that. Some, some people say, yeah. you know. I've understood some of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think. No, I'm I kidding. Think, I, I know yeah. you are, but I think, again, it's something that we just, we have, we don't think about it as right. we use them. Right. Researching this piece, Kyle, I learned some specifics about the next set of quantifiers. As a person who has adhered to AP style since my teens, I never had to worry about the two two of the three. And what, so, what's an AP style book? Oh well, it's the Associated Press's gu- guide Bible to how to write certain things and how word usage. Do and you style. capitalize T-shirt right, or you spell right. it T-E or whatever? Yeah. There's the AP style book, and then there was the Chicago Chicago Manual style, and then of course. As we've gotten into multimedia, NPR has their own style. Mm-hmm. So, sure. yeah. But AP is widely regarded as the largest right. one that people yeah. adhere to. Yeah. AP style does not endorse – the three words are approximately around and about. Mm. Uh, AP style does not endorse approximately because it's just a long word for about. And you're trying to save space in right. print especially. Mm-hmm. AP also does not endorse around because writers should save that for the physical meaning. The horse ran around the time. Yeah. So that leaves about, and that's what we use. And about's a great word. It is. Yeah. Word genius, on the other hand, asserts that approximately is the most specific, which doesn't ring (laughs) to me at all. No, I get that because about sounds sort of like you haven't really thought about it. (laughs) About it. how long hmm, to give you just a bit of insight in into my life it's a saturday mm-hmm. and i'm going to come in to do i've got to do something before the sunday show uh-huh. to get it ready and laura will say how long are you going to be gone i'll say about 45 minutes and she mm-hmm. knows that means <laughs> hour and a half or yes. two <laughs> but approximately well, approximately i mean i you can see that is more specific. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it's it's interesting to me because something that David and I see occasionally causes us to turn to each other with mutual head shakes. You might hear a, comment, a commentator say, approximately 507 people gathered for the protest. Now, I have heard that a lot lately where you don't mean approximately, you no. mean specifically. Yeah, exactly. In fact, you don't have to say anything. And if it's so, 507, and, just say 507. So that's kind of why I balked when when it says yeah. that it's more specific. I. Well, but, I just think, again, I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything to back this up. But I just think that approximately means you've really thought about it. And it's approximately fifteen minutes. I don't know; it could be thirteen, sixteen, depending on road work. Mm. But about is like, eh, 
Yeah. It's about 20. It's casual. Yeah, exactly. Well, Word Genius says it, that approximately quantifies that something is almost accurate or exact. I would I buy that, yes. The exact amount might be known, but expressing it could be too technical, so approximately is close enough. But again, uh, AP yeah. would use about. Yeah. About, it says, is more casual and less exact. Exactly. Unlike a couple or several, these quantifiers don't have a limit. The about and approximately yeah. all that. They could estimate amounts in single digits or in the millions. All relative. Mm-hmm. So we seldom think about them, but that's a few of the several quantifiers we use every day. Our militant grammarian is Catherine Sheralds. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Bella Vista Citywide Garage Sale is Friday and Saturday, April 29th and 30th. Participating residents can register their address online, allowing shoppers to plan and locate shopping locations. Participation is free. BellaVistaAR.gov slash citywide garage sale for registration or more information. KUAF is supported by Little Wing Productions, welcoming classic country rock group Nitty Gritty Dirt Band to the auditorium in Eureka Springs Thursday, June 9th. Band hits include Mr. Bojangles, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, House at Pooh Corner, and more. Tickets are available online at tickets at thundertix.com. This is KUAF 91.3 FM, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and the University of the Ozarks campus in Clarksville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism at the University of Arkansas. Today's show, produced by Timothy Dennis. Contributors included Roby Brock, Leah Uribe, and our militant grammarian, Catherine Sheralds. By the way, Leah Uribe with us every Thursday on Ozarks at Large with Sound Perimeter. You can subscribe to the Sound Perimeter podcast wherever you already subscribe to podcasts. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large. Don't forget, you can always ask your smart speaker to please play. Ozarks at Large and hear the most recent daily edition of our show. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for listening.